we are on. So, yeah, we're so out of practice. I don't have my little window with my little Rick and my little window on the screen. So, yes, some of you might remember this. It is Friday morning, 10 o'clock. Father Eric is in the Discord um, PVK Q&A recorded chat room, something that we had to sort of dust off the chairs and take the cobwebs out. And um, if you want to see the most brutally honest meme done by uh, Father Eric, um, yeah, you can you can see what I've what I've done. But here we are, Friday morning, not the first Friday of the month because I was on vacation last week, but the second Friday of the month in the Bridges of Meaning Discord, answering questions. And so, if you would like to ask a question, you can go into the Bridges of Meaning Discord question and answer room and ask a question. And well, let's see, invite people, invite, drop that in there. Oh, come on, paste, paste, paste. There it is. That's how to get there. Uh, Rick is taking care of business on the back end here. So we will begin with Van Gogh's ear has a question for me, and his question reads as such. I've recently read the passage by Cormac McCarthy. Um, once Luke hears this, he'll be very excited because that's one of Luke's favorite authors. And there's a quote that went, femininity encoded mandates that were far less forgiving than anything men were familiar with. How true, um, how true that is, I don't know but it made me think of Islam and how Islam views women. Based on how you see Islam, do you think the subjugation of women in Islam, once you, once you say the subjugation of women in Islam, you've already sort of stacked a deck here. And I don't know much about Islam, but I suspect um, when a lot of Muslims hear subjugation of women in Islam, they'll have ideas. But we'll continue. Compared to Christianity, is based on secretly or unconsciously believing this out of fear of uncontrolled, unlimited femininity, rather than seeing them as inferior simply because they were women. Well, you know, starting out with a biggie, so I've been, so Mary Harrington, who is a very interesting person to listen to, is coming out with a new book, and she's been on the book tour. She's been on um, many, this little corner adjacent channels. In fact, before I started the live stream, she was talking to Glenn Scrivener. She had a conversation with Chris Williamson. She had a conversation on trigonometry, and I've listened to a fair amount of it, and it's been excellent. I expect we'll see her with Jordan Peterson at some point. Um, that would be my guess. I, this morning I was listening to Grim Grizz, who unfortunately didn't make the list that was in the video that I released this morning on autodidacts, which I think we will have to talk to it, talk about at some point. And, you know, Grim, Grim Grizz is a genius when it comes to naming and pointing. And that's something that um, we should pay more attention to probably. Uh, 
you know, he had a couple of genius little pointers in this morning's live stream, and he comes out with them quite a bit. One of the things he often says is Papa Peterson and giving Jordan Peterson's current Twitter war with Pontifex. Um, Papa Peterson is probably a pretty good name for him, given now that we have a rivalry to the oldest, largest institution the world has ever seen. But I digress. But you've come here for my digressions, I know, because I don't finish my sentences. One of the things I think we are going to see is a, another very radical turning around in the question of femininity. Mary Harrington has basically making the argument that the, the ubiquity and the ubiquity of effective birth control was the first step to the um, I'll, I'll rephrase it in a little bit more trekky way, the beginning of the Borg. And because it makes people into something, it's the beginning of transhumanism, um, I think, if you listen to Mary Harrington. And she makes a lot of sense. It's really difficult to listen to these things because, as Verveke, I think, so correctly points out, our relevance realization and our biases are two sides of the same coin. So what we find to be insightful is, is in many ways a reflection of our bias, which is in some ways the basis of bulverisms. Islam as a system, having this big talk about propositionality in the autodidact conversation, which, which for me was, was a really helpful breakthrough. But Islam is all about what many religious systems are about in terms of preservation. And religious systems don't just preserve the propositional P, they also preserve the procedural P. And part of the reason that you don't have women priests in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church is because of the preservation of the procedural. I think Mary Harrington is correct in her observation that the major disruptors of the procedural human changes have deeply impacted women as well as men. Um, industrialization was an enormously disruptive movement through the world that really scrambled the relationship between men and women. And in some ways, we're, we're still dealing with industrialization as what a lot of this machine learning, and if we phrase it that way, what a lot of this machine learning is, is industrialization of the upper register. So now we have language models that are producing code and talky, thinky-talky stuff that gives us the sense that we are engaging other flesh and blood human beings, the Turing test. 
Islam, of course, is post-agricultural revolution and pre-industrial revolution. And many of the conflicts between at least the postage stamp size vision of Islam that I know and the quote-unquote modern world tends to be even just around the disruption that happened in the Industrial Revolution. There was a really interesting TV show on Hulu that I watched through called Rami, which was about a young Islamic man who was in northern New Jersey trying to figure his stuff out, trying to sort himself out with respect to Islam. The seasons, as with many of these streaming seasons, the seasons devolved as they sort of went through. The first season was the best. The second season was second best, et cetera, et cetera. But the issues that were raised in that series, I thought were applicable to many other, many of the issues that we are dealing with in the church. Now, I was going to say zip codes matter, but we're talking about the world here. So GPS coordinates matter. And life is lived in radically different ways in different places in the world. When I was in the little town that my mother lives in, in Massachusetts, I sat down with the two CRC pastors. And, you know, one of the pastors who had didn't grow up in the Christian Reformed Church, um, his first church was in Palo Alto here in Silicon Valley. That's where I got to know him. Now his second church, now he's the pastor of my mother's church. Every time my mother's church goes vacant, I usually do what I can to make sure they get a good pastor. And he's a good pastor. And he was doing some reflection on the transition from the world of Palo Alto, California to the world of a exurb former industrial town, sort of now sleepy suburb, um, about an hour out of Boston, in terms of just the, the social world of the people. And he, he rightly observed that more people live like they do in that little town in North America than live like they do in Palo Alto, California. The same can be applied to this question about women and Islam. I was listening to on the way to work this morning, which is only five minutes. I listened to a little bit before. I haven't listened to anything done by Dave Rubin for years, but Peter Thiel was on. And so and Peter Thiel's an interesting guy. So I was giving him a listen and Peter Thiel was talking about progress. And as Peter Thiel was talking about progress and talking about mobility as sort of a, a telltale sign of progress, I thought about, is it really though? Isn't um, rootedness part of that value that so many people feeling the waves of nihilism on their internal shores? Isn't that what they're feeling? So it's on what basis ought we to judge the rightness or wrongness of, let's say, pre-industrialization 
femininity versus modern femininity versus postmodern femininity. Mary Harrington, for all of her brilliance, is is very much rooted in this world. Um, part of what all of our position and status give us is sort of a functional libertarian posture where Mary Harrington on one hand is about as sharp as a sharp a critique as I've heard of what has happened, what, what it's like to be a woman in the West today, especially in the English speaking West. She, she can't shed that libertarian ethos and I, I'm, I'm likely there with her. I am, I didn't, I didn't forego the education of my daughters. Um, they're both very bright, um, wonderful human beings for whom I want many options and choices for their life. If they, if they wish to pursue a career and now my, my first option for them would be very selfishly that they um, marry and become mothers. Uh, is that because I want to be a grandfather? Um, yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. I, it's also because as I've told my children, there are in my experience, but again, this is semi-consumeristic and it's very hard to defy that power as we talk. I have had few things in my life as meaningful as being a father and participating in my children's lives and um, watching them grow. It's also challenging. It can be terrifying. It can be scary. But my goodness, having an up-close seat for those five human beings that my wife and I conceived of, gave birth to, sacrificed for, raised. At this point in my life, so I just spent a week with my mother, which was an excellent time. We did almost nothing. She needed a new computer, so we worked on that. And she had a list of little fix-up things around the house, which I did for her, so we worked on that. And But I, I see my visits with my mother through a whole new lens now that I have children and who are no longer living in the home. And for my wife and I, uh, my our time with them doing just about anything is the highlight of the week. And we let very few things get in the way of those times. And so in many ways, underneath your question is the question, is there a better life than this? way which we are so biologically coded for of family. Now, as Grim Grizz, very much a prophet in this little corner of the internet notes um, in his conversation with John Van Donk, which gave us the image of Grim Grizz on a cross in Chino, California, wearing nothing but a jock strap as members of this little corner pelt him with paintballs. Yeah, there's an image not so easily unseen. And uh, yeah, you can thank me later for embedding that in your consciousness. 
Grim Grizz notes that, well, family doesn't just mean the nuclear family. It's also the extended family. And when Peter Thiel talks about mobility as progress, I sometimes wonder. I have a cousin in Massachusetts who is just a few months from my age. And growing up, we played with each other all the time when I was in, in Massachusetts together. And whereas I, the city boy, went on to college and seminary and church work and traveled out of the country and live in California and am not only serving the Christian Reformed Church and my local church, but the world in a sense through YouTube, my life is in stark contrast with that of my cousin who is a welder. And he doesn't live very far from the home he grew up in. And all of his siblings live within a few miles of his house. And he's been married to one woman for his whole life. And he has two children, uh, one who lives a little bit a ways away. He's an electrician on Martha's Vineyard. And the other is his daughter lives in town, both of whom now have given him grandchildren. And um, many of the contrasts between myself and my cousin would be quite stark. You would not, not see my cousin talking on YouTube. Um, he's, um, he is, he is a sincere, undeconstructed, um, conservative Calvinist this goes to a Calvinist church, which is more conservative than the Christian reformed church at this point. And it was funny because sitting and visiting with my cousin, we always got along great and we always do. Um, he's, he's, he's just someone for whom the fruit of the spirit seems to naturally drip from him. He's a wonderful human being. But it was interesting to sit next to him on the sofa and sort of compare our lives now, you know, 50 plus years after we first knew each other, living parallel lives, cousins, and asking, okay, so in the eyes of the world, you know, I might have more status. I have a YouTube channel. I'm a pastor. I, you know, maybe someday I'll write books. Um, all of these measures of value. My cousin is a welder. He has a wife who worked in a mundane office job and now she shoes horses, and which she really loves. They'll never be wealthy. They have two children and son's an electrician. I don't know what their daughter does right now. Last I saw, she was working in a hardware store. Which is better? It's not an easy thing to say. And so, that whole meme of control is, is so tightly woven to this really stupid idea that the only motivational factor that people have is power. What a reduction of a human being. And, you know, the poor Jordan is getting a lot of grief for his war that he picked with the Pope. I, I don't even know if the Pope pays any attention. And if the Pope even knows about it, he'll probably ignore it. And that's sort of the difference between um, the status level of the Pope and the status level, level of even Jordan Peterson. But, oh shoot, I lost my train of thought. Oh, control. I have, 
every time Jordan Peterson just sort of goes off on imagining that the sole motivational factor of a human being is the is the joy derived from somehow controlling another person. What a stupid thought. What a stupid reduction of the complexity of human motivation. One of the most alarming things about the current conversation is just how stupid it all is. As if thousands of years of profound human reflection on the human condition and what it's like to live in this world is simply cast away because someone has the idea that the only reason for injustice is that some sick person, either consciously or unconsciously, simply enjoys the um, the sense of power that one has in dominating another human being and controlling their life. If you've ever actually had to take any responsibility for another human life, you reason you realize just how difficult and impossible the task is. So, yeah. Um, but again. If I were a woman, and I'm not, at least not today, would I rather live in the industrialized West or in Saudi Arabia? Well, maybe that depends on if I'm the wife of an, of an oil sheik. Who knows? But uh, generally speaking, yeah, I, I'm glad my daughters live here and not there. I'm glad they live under a Christian-ish regime and not an Islamic regime. And someone might listen to my answer and say, well, you certainly don't have a lot of firmness in your convictions. And now that I've spent almost the whole first half hour simply riffing on the first question, we know that we are, in fact, doing the Bridges of Meaning question and answer because that has been my practice. So... Um, there we have it. Anybody in the PVKQA recorded chat room wish to weigh in? Oh, see, Luke is gone. He always wants to talk. Father Eric, do you have anything to anything to add given the um, rather different postures that Protestants and Catholics have on the question of femininity? Of, of course, you have a very high status woman that's much more prominent in the Roman Catholic tradition than the Protestant tradition. I don't know. Any thoughts, Father Big Mac? Uh, it's kind of hard to jump in here, but uh, I do think um, women do hold an awful lot of power, and sometimes they're unaware of it, and that can cause problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. As a... As a Protestant and the, who also has a high view of women, um, I, I actually think that uh, the the highest view of women is is afforded in the in the Reformed tradition in well oriented. What I mean by that is um, stating stating that in spite of a sinful creature who has been defiled by the curse of Adam, they are used for such glorious purpose. Um, and that is, that is to be held in the highest regard in the household uh, and, and most especially in the birth of Christ. Wow. Great answer. Cool. See, this is why we do this. This is why we do this. 
and, and you know, we, we, uh, Rick and I evaluate the different, so we're using the vMix protocol this morning to do this. Um, if Rick's not here, I usually use StreamYard and um, kind of evaluate back and forth. I would have loved to have seen uh, seen seen that expressed in with a little face in a box. Would have been even better. But thank you both. Thank you both. All right, next question. On we go. People are. Let's see. Are people adding questions? Yeah, they are. Even Grim Grizz. What's crying? What did he want? Okay. Uh, da, 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 da. Zach Rudolph. What percentage of this little corner users? Uh, this little corner uses high-minded abstractions as a place to hide. Ugh. Zach, Zach, what, 100%? Uh, three people said 100%, and I'd have to agree with that. That's, I think, certainly a piece of our motivational structure. <laughs> I shouldn't tell stories of stories out of school. Um yeah, yeah. Vendant calls it um, myopic mental meanderings. You know, we talk, and if you've got a lot of education and a lot of smarts, and because it gives us status, um, we do it all. We do a lot of lip flapping with all of this stuff, and I'm the king of that. Someone might say, except Jordan Peterson now, since uh, his Daily Wire hookup seems to be able to put out more product than I do, nearly. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's always, we love hiding in abstractions, but I think Christ is quite clear. Again, one of the really critical things that Protestants have to wrestle with, we being people who want to really focus on the book, is that in the New Testament, all of the mentions of final judgment are based on our actions, not our propositional assent. Uh, it doesn't mean that actions and propositional assent are disconnected, but it is just so easy to talk. And of course, Jesus has a lovely parable about that, about two sons. Uh, father told two sons to do something. One father, one son said, I'll do it, and then didn't do it. And the other said, um, no, but then he went and did it. Which one gets the best um, evaluation by the father? It's an easy question. Jesus has a way of getting right to the point. So great question, Zach. David Walker, Kansas City, Missouri. The settlers lost to the missionaries. The Anglicans lost to the Puritans. The fundamentalists lost to the modernists. The trads will lose to the left and the right-handed universalists. The roundheads beat the royalists. The patriots beat the crown. The Catholics pretty much lost to the Protestants. Ouch. What pattern is this supposed to be that keeps happening over and over? I don't really discern much of a pattern in there necessarily um, because losing is, of course, an evaluation. It's not. Our evaluations are our own. It's something to, to, to continually remember. Um, did the fundamentalists lose to the modernists? I'm not so sure about that. Uh, the fundamentalists have shown a surprising amount of staying power. Uh, someone might say that the Christians lost to the lions, but um, where are the lions today? So uh, in many ways, there's no judging until the final judgment. And so, yeah, I don't know. Hey, Paul, this is from Zan. Looking for some advice. 
I'm currently moving from my small town in Paducah, Kentucky to Melbourne, Australia. Wow. For a year on holiday and work visa. Wow. Heck of a holiday and work. That's really cool. And want to remain intentionally on strengthening my relationship with the Lord while I am overseas. Any advice on how to get plugged into a new church and all the rest? Well, you can look up my friend Warren, um, Warren Mills in Melbourne, Australia. If you say Paul Vanderclay sent me, um, I'm sure he'll open open up with welcome arms. He's got a lovely traditional Anglican church in Melbourne. Uh, Warren, he's been on my channel before. He, he's the one that organized the Jordan Peterson conference in Australia that didn't feature Jordan Peterson, but featured me. We tried. We had John Anderson give a little bit of introduction um, when I. I did a little video recording with John Anderson. He's sitting there with suit and tie and he looks at how I'm dressed and he's like, that's, that's Sacramento's a political town. And um, I used to show up for political events without a suit and tie. And some of my friends would look at me like, such a rube. Um, yeah, get up, get plugged into a church. Um, Warren grew up a dispensationalist. Um, became a Pentecostal, and now is a very traditional Anglican. And so he's um, he's been... Oh, somebody's calling me from CAT Exteriors. I have no idea what that is. It probably has to do with all of my storm damage. Um, so I would, I would say, yeah, get connected with a church. There's lots of good churches in Melbourne. Um, I, yeah, look up Warren. Go to church with Warren um, for a Sunday or two and see if that's your taste. I went to his church. He has a lovely pastor. I met some people in the church, lovely people in the church. It's in downtown Melbourne. Warren now lives on the 13th floor of a high rise. Um, and Warren's a great guy. So that but there are others um, in this little corner that are in Melbourne, Australia. And I would say just work your angles. But if you're only going to be there for a year, Find a church that's close enough and stay in the same church the whole time and use that year to build some relationships and gain some perspectives from another part of the world before you come back to North America. And I think your life will be enriched by uh, what the Christians in Australia have to share with you. So great question. Hey, Paul, picked up on you noting the NIV using Lake and the KJV using C in your first draft of 11 February. I've made that point in a number of them because Lake is a... Lake... So in terms of this migration into the symbolic world, the NIV's translation of what in Greek is the word C for Lake because Protestant translators say the sea of galilee is a lake not a sea misses the point misses the point this the sea of galilee is this little mini sea where they have storms and fish and drama and chaos i mean if you if you demote the sea of galilee to a lake you you lose all that stuff sorry 
I'll be back. I'm going to get back to the question. Do you have any thoughts on the KG, the KJV using charity and the NIV using love in <laughs> First Corinthians 13? Okay, Vander Clay, you complained about this one thing. What about the other? The difference really isn't in the King James. Part of the part of the challenge, the King James Bible has some wonderful things about it and some more difficult things about it. There are textual issues that Anselman can, uh, the, the autodidact of our comment section can, um, can teach you about the textus receptus versus the critical text, for example, in terms of the what Greek text to use underneath your English translation. So my issue between sea and lake has nothing to do with any of those issues. The King James Version was speaking to an audience that's 500 years old now, and the English language has changed in those 500 years. The, the How to translate the Bible is an enormously difficult thing because what any translation surfaces are all the layers of filters that we pass through. So the symbolism layer, the let's say the lyrical layer. And of course, the King James Version has, has is, is one of our best translations in terms of its lyrical quality. And another quality that the King James Version has is just the fact that it's old and common and in that, and, and in a sense, archaic. It being archaic is a plus in many ways because it gives us a sense of the strangeness of God and his word. I noted in my video on the Jesus people that during the late 60s and early 70s, there was a whole there were a whole range of new translations, really paraphrases that came in. There was a there was a, a paraphrase of the Bible called the way. There was good news for modern man. Now, some of these paraphrases have become the, the terribly named translation, the New Living Translation, because it's not a translation. It's just an update of the paraphrase called the Living Bible. And having seen the Living Bible used now for 40 years, on one hand, I can appreciate the fact that many people used the Living Bible and now use the New Living Translation and really like it because for them it's clear. And it's clear because the good evangelical theology is already um, chewed and digested and prepackaged for them like a TV dinner. And so if you read the Bible, you will find sort of... Um, uh, homogenized, reformed theology built into your translation. Is that a bad thing? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's really helpful to know that that's what you're reading. So in my adult Sunday school class, this is stuff that I, so, so I'm going to give you guys a little insight. This Sunday, Rick and I might be able to bring in via StreamYard participants for the Sunday morning Roman study. And there will be a link in the comment section if we're able to pull it off on Sunday morning. But in order to participate, you got to show up live 
at 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning at Living Stones after daylight savings time. Boy, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of um, nerves about that. Rick's going to really have to, you know, um, we'll, we'll probably limit it to three or five or six participants because the reason I've never opened that door is that I don't want to um, overwhelm the the dear saints at Living Stones, and there are a few of them. But that class is really hard to hold, hard to do properly if I don't have any audience at all. And some of the regulars are currently in hospitals or care units. And um, so this, that's part of the ongoing question about Living Stones in this digression. Um, at a council meeting last night, and, you know, the council who hasn't had a respite because we're about out of council members in the population of the congregation, but they're very pop- optimistic about the future of Living Stones. We have some wonderful people who are driving in for church on Sunday morning, younger people, and they have a little group and they know each other and they enjoy each other. And we've got other people who come to the estuary meetings and some of the estuary people are um, stopping in on church on Sunday morning. So yeah, MJ, it's working. <laughs> That's nasty. <laughs> that is a trollish part of me. I get it from my mother. My father had none of that. Um, so yeah, the New Living Translation which is a paraphrase, it's got its place. Now, how all of this relates to Protestantism, there's another fun question. So the King James Version has its place. I've got a lot of my biblical memorization in the King James and the Revised Standard Version. Some of it's in the NIV. The NIV sort of tries to, you know, cut the difference between a translation and a paraphrase. It's mostly translation, but then they have their dynamic equivalents where they, they'll they give you sort of often a, a broadly reformed perspective on a particular text to the degree that that satisfied the NIV translation committee. So charity is something that if you say it on the streets of Sacramento, they'll think you're talking about a woman's name or they'll think you're talking about um, a soup kitchen. Love is probably the better word. But better, again, has, is a very difficult thing because if better means having someone on the streets of Sacramento understand what you're saying, love is better. Charity, historically, for someone who, let's say, perhaps has a really good English degree from a really good college and not a good English, deg- an English degree that required them to actually not read any English or a historical English. Um, charity has some undertones and some nuances that are better. Now, um, I know Wesley and Whitefield because he, I met him at the, at the event in Ireland. And so I have his face in my mind right now. How this is sensed, whether charity in Ireland is a word that is has not lost its meaning. And this is a difficulty with these universalized translations. So where, and, and this goes the same with the question of has the, has the, the multiplication of English language translations undermined the Bible? That's a fair argument. 
because when there was just the King James Version, it had a degree of authority and uniformity. Everyone was reading from the same text, as it were, in the English language world. So one might push it back a little further and say, has the, has the use of the vernacular in the church been a problem? nod out there to all the Roman Catholics who say, we had a universal language in the West and it's Latin. And you can kick that back another degree and say, no, we had a universal language in the Christian world and it was Greek. And kick that back a little further and say, no, we had a universal language and it was Aramaic. Kick it back a little further and you say, no, we have God's word in Hebrew. So... Here we are. Good question. Mr. Boltitude using the oh that little cartoon was that that like that little Bible robot cartoon evangelical thing. Great, great icon there. Hey Paul, I recently read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Yeah, I gotta reread that thing. Have you ever read them? I read them before I was old enough to really appreciate them. I read them in high school. And if so, do you have any thoughts? My thought is I need to reread them because ever since I started this channel, whole bunches of people have been yelling at me to reread them, and I have not. Just as whole bunches of people have been yelling at me to read Jung, to read Nietzsche, to read, 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 um, making videos. I, I can't be reading and making videos. No, that's that's actually the um, the Jesus People video was me reading and making a video at the same time. So I guess I could do it. I could just turn on the camera and start reading the space trilogy. It would be a very long video because I don't read that well. I feel like I wouldn't have understood half of what was going on if I had read them before I found this little corner. Well, there you go. <laughs> Point taken. Father Big Mac, is there a big difference between the Dutch Calvinism and English Calvinism? Define big. Um, big as in Big Mac. Um, here, one of, one of the best ways to get a sense of the difference between Dutch Calvinism and English Calvinism is to read the Hutterberg Catechism and then read the Westminster Confession. And my father used to talk about this. And so uh, the Westminster Confession is tighter Part of this has to do with the difference between England, that little island that has so influenced us all, and the continent. The continent is a little bit more diverse. It was so much fun visiting Europe this summer for the first time. Quite a shock to go over to the Netherlands and realize just how small it is. And now with um, Europe well after the Second World War, we just drive out of the Netherlands and we drive into Germany and, you know, France is right over there. And, you know, it's not a terribly large place if you compare it to our expectations of what we have here in North America, where everything is so huge. So the Dutch also have a tradition of tolerance. It's helpful to look at how the reformed aspect of the Protestant Reformation rolled out. So, of course, you have, well, you have Jan Hus a generation before, and then you have Martin Luther in Germany and what was left of the Holy Roman Empire, because Germany wasn't yet when Martin Luther was there. 
Um, and Lutheranism, you know, Lutheranism has been dominant in Germany and then up into Scandinavia, because of course you got Denmark and Daneland and all those places up there. Um, John Calvin was in Switzerland, and you have the very different geopolitical reality of Switzerland with all of these sort of little city states that make it up. And then the Anabaptists, of course, were sort of first to settle in the Netherlands. And the reason that the, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons why the Netherlands was sort of the fringe, boy, I'm going to get in trouble with this. It was sort of the tolerant fringe of Europe by, and, and that's, that's how the Netherlands in some ways continues to be. And so that impacted Dutch Calvinism. And so there is, there is actually a fair amount of diversity within Dutch Calvinism, but there's also a fair amount of toleration. You will find, generally speaking, a bit more toleration in Dutch Calvinism than you'll find in English Calvinism or Presbyterianism. It just had very different, and then of course, Scotland, um, the, the Scotch Calvinists. So it, it's just a very different history. Um, a lot of people in the Christian Reformed Church will look over at the Gospel Coalition, at um, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, at the Presbyterian Church of America, but also the PCUSA, and they will look at those, those and yeah, they're different from us. Um, the Dutch Calvinists tended to have to deal with pluralism a little bit more. I just was reading on Voices, um, Eric, a different Eric who is a Navy chaplain um, in the Christian Reformed Church. And he, you know, was, was writing about Kuyperian, you know, his, his, his questions about Kuyper, because Kuyper, of course, had pillarization in the Netherlands to try to deal with pluralism. Uh, Richard Mao, Nick Waltersdorf, all of the Dutch Calvinists from Calvin College tried to promote the idea of principled pluralism. Tim Keller has read a lot of Dutch Calvinism. Tim Keller, I would argue, and I think this is part of why a lot of people are annoyed with him. Tim Keller, even though he's a conservative Presbyterian, in many ways is right on the edge of, of English Calvinism and Dutch Calvinism. I remember when I visited with Tim Keller in 2006, and we had a little contingent of us from the Christian Reformed Church, and we were noting just how often he quotes Richard Mao, Nick Waltersdorf, Alvin Plantinga, uh, George Marsden, all of these lights from the, the little post-World War II renaissance that Calvin College had, uh, thanks to Rod Jellema and the philosophy department. And um, Raj Greenway, who was the father of a classmate of mine, and he was also our missions teacher at seminary. Um, Greenway is another one of these wonderful families in the Christian Reformed Church that has generational Christian Reformed pastors. Um, you know, was a was a um, was a colleague of Tim Keller's over at Westminster, Philadelphia. So the Dutch Calvinists have been. Uh, impacting the English Presbyterians and back and forth. 
a lot of what a lot of what people are complaining about in the Christian Reformed Church right now is that in a lot of ways the emergent young restless and reformed which has been a significant movement in North America is now in many ways impacting the Christian Reformed Church to a significant degree um a lot of in sort of the mixture of right and left in the Christian Reformed Church Tim Keller was accepted more by both sides. Um, John Piper, not so much. Doug Wilson uh, makes some people scream for the exits. So, yeah, look at look at the conservative Presbyterians and compare them to the Dutch Calvinists, and you'll see sort of a. I don't know. I don't know, Father Eric, if that answered your question or not. If you had something more specific in mind. Yeah. Um, so I remember one time listening to you talk about the doctrine of total depravity. And if I remember it properly, it was something like there is no aspect of the human person that has not been wounded by the sin of Adam. And if that wasn't correct, uh, you feel free to correct that me. That is correct. Um, yep, that's right. And and I was sitting there thinking, that's not total depravity. That's uh, pretty close to what I believe. Um <laughs> And I always, always you know, said I always had Calvinism is Christianity. See, I don't know yeah, how much difference I, there is in some of these things. <laughs> right. Well, I always, I, I don't know. I, I don't know where I picked this up, but I always thought that uh, total depravity meant that the human person doesn't have any capacity to cooperate with grace before they're redeemed. Yeah, and if I'm wrong about a, that, I'll be a, wrong about that. That is a that is definitely a a a valid reading of our doctrine. And okay. that is, I would say, I'd say total depravity doesn't just have one definition. Okay. And part of the problem is that um part of the problem is that these old combatants. I don't think I got anywhere near as fair a representation of Roman Catholic theology as I should have. Right. Given, you know, the, the years of rivalry and warfare. And a lot of that has been clean is, is in the process of improving over the last 30 years. But whenever the Christian reform church tries to like change, I mean, we, um, the Christian Reform Church put a footnote in one of the Heidelberg Catechism sections about the mass being a condemnable idolatry, pretty strong words, um, sort of backing away from that statement. And a number of the Latin American uh, Christian Reformed clergy um, did not want to back away from that statement. I think partly because the Roman Catholic Church in North America is a little bit different thing than the Roman Catholic Church in Latin America in some ways? Absolutely. So, you guys are just so massive. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. it, you know, hopefully we can, we can talk fairly to each other. And then when you get into this question of, of works righteousness and what we both mean by that, um, where did the reformers, you know, one of the things I really liked about Brett, about Brett Sockold's book is that I think we're at a point now where we can, we can understand where the reformers weren't necessarily being fair to the tradition, but then again, all of those reformers had zip codes too. So God is our judge. Amen.
works righteousness and what we both mean by that. Um, where did the reformers, you know, one of the things I really oh, like. Oh, it's me again. <laughs> Somebody needs to mute me. All right. Okay, next question. Where the reformers weren't necessarily. There we go. Thanks, Rick. Okay. Pineapple pizza. Regarding autodidacts and the church leadership, boy, that that conversation that we had on that stream and then reflecting on it, I was reflecting on it this morning. I wrote a big Twitter thread. I might make a little video on that Twitter thread that I wrote because, you know, bringing some of the ideas here together in terms of the abstractions, you know, we, we need these systems of abstractions in order to work on our communities together and work on our thoughts and, um, you know, the, the Christian Reformed Church has always accepted those baptized by Rome. Now, maybe that's historical because that's who everyone was in the Reformation. You had to work from the baptism of Rome. And then they, you know, they basically said, we'll accept any baptism when who's baptized in the name of the Trinitarian God, which of course, well, I don't know when Sam was baptized or who baptized Sam, but um, this is all so difficult. And the, the rise of the autodidact, we talked about Servetus in the stream. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that uh, when I met Sam, I was under no authority to put Sam in handcuffs and bring him to Grand Rapids and have him burned at the stake. Um, I don't want to see my friend Sam burned at the stake. Um, the world has changed a lot. and But yet this question of autodidacts and church leadership, you'll notice that I've, I've never had a debate with Sam on the Trinity, partly because I pushed him over to Brett Sockold for that, because Sockold is a theologian and Sockold will know a lot more. Um, he'll be able to fight more fairly for the Trinitary, the Trinity side than I am. And you can watch Jonathan Peugeot also in a number of videos, sidetrack the Trinity Wars um, as much as Jacob would like to pull me into endless disputes, Jacob, my friend. But um, regarding the autodidacts and the church leadership, I think satisficing versus maximizing. What is good enough? Well, let's look at satisficing. Satisficing is a decision-making strategy or cognitive heuristic that entails searching through the available alternatives until an acceptable threshold is met. The term satisficing, a portmanteau of satisfying and suffice, interesting, was introduced by Herbert A. Simon in 1956, although the concept was first posited in his 1947 book, Administrative Behavior. Simon used satisficing to explain the behavior of decision makers under circumstances in which an optimal solution cannot be determined. He maintained that many natural problems are characterized by computational intractability or lack of information, both of which preclude the use of mathematical optimization procedures. He has observed this in his Nobel Prize in Economics speech that decision makers can satisfice either by finding optimal solutions for simplified work or by finding satisfactory solutions for a more realistic world. Neither approach in general dominates the other and both have to continue to coexist in the world of management science. Like C.S. Lewis analogy goes, a hallway of many rooms of denominations, but you have to settle in a room long term with a 
with the present um, ability to learn so many propositions, maybe the analogy is now people can try to create their own room and renovations. Our friends who stream while construct who stream while constructing, but will that be sustainable? Or do you settle for something established, but many have other avenues to scratch the thinky-talky itch while others living out the love and implication of the propositions you propose? So maybe I'll generalize a little bit so as not to make people, real people uncomfortable. As a pastor, I get to talk to church people part of the job. I have heard Christian Reform elders give definitions of divine election that are flat-out Arminian, and they don't know it. I have seen Jehovah's Witnesses give articulations of, of their Christology, which are completely, or at least seemingly, orthodox rather than heretical as they would hold in the Jehovah's Witness Church. Given everything I read in the Gospels with the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ, he who would accept the gift of the woman of ill repute who came to him washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair to the disgust of his hosts who did not offer a foot washing, which had, would have been hospitable. Jesus clearly understands our dilemma. And this is why only God can judge. When I say only God can judge, I do not mean that human beings don't need to discern. When I say only God can judge, that means that God alone can finally assign us to any future of judgment or reward that he has in store for us. That position only belongs to God. Local church leaders... You know, when, when when the Bible says, you know, be careful, those of you who wish to be teachers, for you'll be judged at a higher standard, we ought to take that seriously. And the same goes for church leaders. Part of why local churches are important and part of why church polity is important and part of why I like and I feel very at home in the Christian Reformed Church system is that we try to balance the authority of the local council with the authority of the regional assembly, that's the classis, with the authority of the binational assembly, which is the synod. And we we, we work we work in that way. And, and some some of you will notice that, wow, that's a lot like the way government is supposed to work. Yeah, that's because it's all downstream from Protestantism. It would be easy to point out Sam and his biblical, I almost always call him a biblical universalist when he's a biblical Unitarian. It'd be easy to point out Sam and say, ah, Sam must not pass this line or fellowship with us because of his deficient theology of the Trinity. Well, fair enough. But 
if he wishes to be with us, um, we have to figure that out. Because if I were to give a sufficiently intrusive theological examination to, and I could do it with my church, it's small enough, but I would, I would suspect to do it to any church. And again, this is something that Protestants probably have to wrestle with more. I could fail any congregation. I'm sure I could. And others can fail me, as you regularly do in the comment section and in other videos, which is fine. I'm, I'm totally mostly comfortable with you pointing out my errors because to the degree that I have humility enough, um, as the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says, if you point out my flaws, you are my friend because um, I can perhaps become better because of you. So, you know, Anselman with his, with his sharp eye for, um, for Protestant missteps in the comment section, I don't ban Anselman. I wish him to thrive. Now, there's a degree to which this stuff can become counterproductive, and we've seen that in Discord servers and in other places. And it's part of the reason why my videos are not one video after another pointing out all of the errors of everyone else, because, of course, by the measure that you evaluate them, that measure will be used against you. Um, a certain Jew whose name starts with J uh, said very clearly in the most famous sermon in all of human history. So local church leaders have to figure out what to do, what's best for the flock. And in Reformed and most Protestant groups, that means that groups of them together, lay people who probably know less theology than the autodidacts, have to make decisions um, have to make decisions that judge, in some cases, their theological betters. That's the way it is. And this is why this is why I keep pushing love up to the top of the hierarchy. Now, it's too easy to game that system too, and you can say, well, then why don't you why don't you what? Let everyone have no discernment, have no lines? No, because I can tell you. Having no lines can be just as unloving as having too many lines and lines that are too bright. Like skin, we need semi-permeable membranes, and we will have to live with the limitations of those membranes. This leads to the strange place that I am in the Christian Reform conversation where, as much as it frustrates some people, I'm, I don't use my channel to promote... Um, LGBTQ inclusion in the Christian Reformed Church as currently constituted, but I do even encourage some of my friends who are in um, progressive churches that seem absolutely persuaded and intent on following that path to say, follow that path. Leave, you know, let's figure out denominational lines. You'll be outside of it, but um, you know, if you think this is the next evolution in Christian discipleship. I can't stop you even if I wanted to try. So, but that leaves us all with the human condition where we are given agency and we get to think and we have to choose 
and we have to live with the consequences of our choices, both temporal and eternal. So finding ways to satisfy or satisficing, yes, it, it, reality always involves that. And But what was so helpful about, you know, it was Sam in the video that said, you know, we have a problem with autodidacts. And I thought, bingo, there he is. He's right. He's right. And, and this is why I don't want to have a world where I draw lines and I can't talk to Sam. When Sam came into this little corner, Mary, you know, we, we've got, this is why I don't doubt these, the existence of these ecclesiastical, spiritual, theological bodies, because when, when Sam came in as a non-Trinitarian, it was like, 1700 years of an of an immune system kicked up and manifest themselves through the absolutely lovely Mary Cohen and I thought oh my isn't this interesting it kicked up through me because I thought you know I could talk about Jordan Peterson and half of the things I talk about on my channel all day long and not get anywhere near running a foul of my uh, confessional standards of my denomination, but Trinity? <laughs> but as Sam has been around, you know, I, some of you commenters, I've got a good memory. And I remember what a bunch of you wrote when Sam first came into the channel. You don't talk that way about Sam anymore. Sam's your friend. Now, I just read another comment that I don't think was fair to Sam. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that relationship goes in this little corner. But when Jesus says, love your enemies all the way up to and including, well, love your, love your neighbor all the way up to and including your enemies, it includes women of ill repute. It includes heretics. It includes Jews, it includes Muslims, it includes includes atheists, it includes it's 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 a universal. Now figuring out what love looks like, well, there we are. And so figuring out what love looks like for Sam's local church. It's easy for me to sit across the country and say, I wouldn't decide what they decide. Yeah, but I'm not the pastor of that church. They've got to make decisions. It's easy to say, Sam should just submit. Oh, okay, but you're not Sam. So, and it's not just Sam, you know, poor Sam. Poor Sam gets to be the poster child for all this stuff. And um, anyone who's met Sam and knows Sam knows that he is a brilliant, well-read, lovely, um, you know, humble servant of God who wants um, who wants the best for this world. That's that's who Sam is. And but there are many others. I mean, CW was in that chat. And if you get into CW's story about his relationship with the OPC, um, this is a this is a feature now. It, it's a feature that that it's a struggle and a challenge that we have due to our affluence and due to our blessings. 
but it's still a challenge and we have to figure it out. And if there's anything I'm interested in, it's um, having the church work. And yes, um, is submission an answer? Absolutely. But submission has to be freely chosen. And, um, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of point to our adversaries and rivals and say they must submit, but then to line up behind Martin Luther, who did not, or to line up behind John Calvin, who fled France, or to line up behind John Knox, or um, Henry VIII, or you know, just pick your, pick your side in the Catholic Orthodox spat in terms of the procession of the spirit from the father or the father and the son. Each of us stands before the judgment throne and will give an account about what we've done. And as I said, um, the New Testament is pretty consistent that we're judged according to what we've done. Does that mean that the um, second person of the Trinity won't have a delightful conversation with Sam and Jacob? I want to be there for that. <laughs> but then, of course, they're going to say that the non-triune God will have a very interesting conversation with me. And part of the delight of this little corner is that, well, it's not ecclesiastical. Estuary is intentionally church adjacent. Will it be synagogue adjacent or mosque adjacent? I don't know. You know, we have, um, you know, for a hot minute there, um, Raj was the, I told Raj at the last meetup, I said, Raj, you're the, you're the hot girl of this little corner right now. Once Raj came on the channel, everybody wanted to have a conversation with Raj and everybody should have a conversation with Raj. Talk about a smart, sincere, delightful, wonderful human being that, and this is maybe MJ's vindication that, you know, it was after his contact with me, to what degree I had any participation in this, I have no idea, but it was after his contact with me that he decides to wear the head covering and have his facial hair in a certain way and work on his relationship with uh, with Sikhi. So have I made Raj a better Sikh? How will God judge me for that? But if I have to give a defense to my Lord, I will say this. I will say, you taught me to love my enemies. And that included my friends and my theological rivals. And I know I haven't done it perfectly. But I did put that at the top of my hierarchy. And um, when I read Jesus, Jesus who on one hand can be so gracious and welcoming that many think him irresponsible and so strident and bombastic and demanding that many of us think him unreasonable that I will say to my God, I did my best to be like Jesus. 
And I did my best to be like Jesus by the ones that I found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, informed by the rest of the New Testament, informed by the rest of the scriptures, informed by the theological and ecclesiastical tradition that I received by virtue of my birth and my choices along the way. And that is where I'll stand. And for that reason, if I am faithful to that Jesus, I will do what I'll do. And I'll do what I'll do with Sam and with John Verveke and with Jacob and with Mark Lefebvre of Navigating Patterns. And just so that I don't miss, I love all my children equally, but I sure do watch a lot of Grim Grizz because I, you know, just can't get enough of that little fella. And he's somebody I really can't wait to meet this spring. Um, but all of this goes down to Jesus. It is, it is because of Jesus that I do these things. And um, so when I have to answer to my God about all of the different ways that I have failed him, now this is very Protestant of me, my only defense will be pointing to Jesus and say, you know, I, I was, I'm certainly not your best servant, but I know whose servant I want to be. So there's that. And church has got to work that up, work that through. All right. Are Christians bound to the Sabbath? Episode nine, spoiler alert, Dennis Prager asked that question. Gosh, I'm way behind on the Exodus series. I'm kind of been waiting for them to come out on YouTube because then my next question to Daily Wire is, if I do a commentary series while... Because just because something's on YouTube doesn't mean that I can do what I do with them. Like if I, back in the day when Joe Rogan was on YouTube and I tried to do what I do with Joe, Rob Joe Rogan, you know, Rogan polices and, you know, he doesn't like his clips going out there. So I don't know what Daily Wire is going to do when it's on Jordan's channel. But, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm not up to episode nine. Christian's bound to the Sabbath. Christian Reformed Church has a tradition of Sabbatarianism, which is not unique to the Christian Reformed Church. That was not an uncommon thing in the 19th century. If you've listened to any of my sermons, you should know about misery, deliverance, gratitude. I think Sabbath is a gift to us. And those of you who know a little bit about Calvinist doctrine will say, oh, wait a minute, there's Calvin's third use of the law. And so if you want to Google that, Calvin's third use of the law, you can see that. So that's, again, part of my theological tradition. So I don't see the Sabbath. It's so difficult to know how to handle the law because in many ways, even if you see the law as an a work of gratitude for the deliverance that God has given us, there still needs to be some of that crunchy lawness to it for the law to work in our lives and hearts. So um, I think um, I think the Sabbath is a gift given to man. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Someone said that. You can Google that and see who said it before me. What's crying? What are emotions and how do we relate to a soul? Emotions are, emotions like dreams are signs 
and signals and language from other members of our Consciousness Congress. As I often tell people, if you divinize emotions, which is a real um, weakness of romanticism, um, if you divinize emotions, then you have an idol and a false god. Don't do that. If you always mistrust emotions, um, you're not listening to the other members of your Consciousness Congress. Emotions tell you something about parts of yourself that aren't necessarily, that don't necessarily trade in the propositional. So emotions are communications from parts of ourself that we might not be terribly aware of. And, and we have that, you know, you're watching a movie and suddenly you find yourself crying. What does that mean? There are also there are also communications from other parts of your extended self that aren't necessarily limited to to you since birth, just like that um, autoimmune response that that Mary Cohen exhibited when she first saw Sam, and some of the rest of you did too. So uh, that that came upon her as an emotion, and then she acted upon it, and later upon other reflection had to say, huh. And if you go into therapy, a lot of therapy is, oh, you're having these emotions. Why? Why am I having these emotions? Uh, maybe I need to process that in my thinky-talky resources. And maybe if I process it in my thinky-talky resources, the emotions will start to change. We're very mysterious creatures. So that's crying. Eric Young. Hey, Paul. I've been really struggling with my personal relationship with Christianity and what it means if I pursue it further by joining a church. Oh, you and how many of my listeners. As an ex-Jehovah's Witness, I really want to share what we've learned from this little corner about the true history of Christianity with my mother and brother that are still in the cult. But I know once I do this, I'll be labeled an apostate, if I'm not already, and be shunned forever with no chance of reconnection. You are illustrating this excellent question and surfacing of the word satisficing. I'm saying it better as I practice. Any advice as a pastor on how to help people who have been brainwashed into wrong beliefs? Um, if you're looking at if you're looking for people who have been brainwashed into wrong beliefs, me speaking as a Calvinist, using my definition of total depravity that Father Eric agrees with, uh, you're talking about all of the rest of us who share the planet. So there's that. Uh, do you have a particularly intense form in your family members? Probably. Um, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves, Jesus tells us, which means... I feel your dilemma and you're going to, I, I would, my advice to you would probably be don't not join a church because your family will label you an apostate. I'll say that first. Because in some ways, they won't know you're serious about what you believe to be true until you act on it, and joining a church would push that. Might they shun you? Yes. Might they shun you forever? 
there, there's a dynamic that happens with with these kinds of things. If you watch, for example, the movie Color Purple, there's a there's a lovely scene where Suge, the church is singing a song, and Suge, who because she's a lesbian, begins singing and. Um, what a powerful part of that movie. I, I, I feel emotions, Grizz. I feel emotions. They're telling me this is touching something deeply in me. I've used that scene for sermon illustrations back when I was using movie clips. Gasp. But it's a beautiful scene because what conflictive situations such as shunning do is sort of elevate the tension and the elevation of that tension can sometimes provoke the big transformations that sometimes need to happen. So I would say you don't probably do your family members a favor by masking how strongly you feel about this. But you got to make, you get, nobody can do those equations for you. This is why. You know, I'll often get questions from people, people who are in, let's say, in a bad marriage. And all of their friends are saying, get out of the marriage. I'm not talking about a marriage where there's, where a woman is being assaulted physically by a man. I'm, not, I'm talking usually about men who are married to women that are, um, because he's a man and she's a woman. She's not beating him up, although that happens too sometimes. But, you know, she's she's sure doing a number on him. I won't tell him to leave. That's his decision. I won't judge him for leaving either because I see what's going on. But God gives us choice, gives us agency, and we got to use that agency. So, but the, the one piece of advice I can give would be don't necessarily not join a church because of your family. Let them deal with it. There's, You're not the first person to leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. Trust me on that. Um, and for that reason, you've seen it. But um, in time, in time, those family ties are strong. So great question. Chad the Alcoholic, what can we do to be more useful to you? Oh, Chad, you are so useful to me. You do Friday morning nameless. I watched the I watched the video this morning with the zipper. <laughs> oh, Chad. <laughs> what have you observed in me that I could work on? Oh, Chad, I don't know you well enough to critique you, but from what I have seen of you, um, you you are a wonderful guy who brings yourself to this corner very generously. And um, when Chad loves, he loves hard. Um, blessed be his wife. You're, you're doing you're doing what you can do, Chad. I so look forward to seeing you again in May down in Chino. Again, part of me is going to be really jealous of you guys camping. Um, it's because it's probably not going to rain, <laughs> as it did in Germany, where I felt really bad for the campers. <laughs> um. I don't know, Chad, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, I don't have time to watch everything. And so 
you know, I usually check in on Grim Grizz and Chad's channel to see what they're picking up in the corner. And that helps me sort of sift through and prioritize things. So you do a lot for me, Chad, but just, just keep being who you are and keep, you know, Chad, you, like me, like many of us are working at our salvation in front of cameras and posting it on YouTube. Gosh, is that insane? What does it mean? But I think we're finding it a big help because as that mimetic genius, Grim Grizz notes, we're virtually not alone. And, um, many of us, if we didn't have such a space, would be much more alone. And in fact, I see others who, I mean, everybody's working through all the stuff that we work through. They really are. Maybe not at the level we are with the kind of intensity we are, but we have each other in this thing. And um, that's, that, that's the real value here. The real value is not a YouTube channel with millions of subscribers. The real value is not a, a Patreon account that brings in, you know, millions of dollars a year. The real value is not a book deal or fame or, you know, all of the things that the world has. The real value is each other. And the, um, you know, what, what, what immense value in my life has now I'm going to do the list thing again, so please forgive me if you're not on it. But And I'm going to use some, you know, Jacob and Nate and Mark and Grizz and Chad and John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot and Jordan Peterson and, you know, channels big and small and, and Karen. And you guys are the value because, you know, here I go, Protestant preachers. The problem with these Q&As, you guys get me preaching. The money's going to pass. The fame's going to pass. All of these things are going to pass. But one way or another, I believe God is working with us and through us for his glory. And at least some of us, it's up to the Lord, maybe all of us if the universalists are right, but I'm skeptical, we're going to have everlastingness together or eternity together, depending on how you understand those words. You know, the car, the money, the all of the things that this world values, these things, um, what we share is of more lasting value than these things. So, so Chad, what can you do? Keep sharing yourself and do so honestly. And I see you do it honestly. And I know, will, will you sometimes share things that later you go back and say, what a knucklehead I was? Yep, you will. And I can, I can point to, I've shared more than most of you. And so I have more examples of that than most of you. But I've shared myself. I've given you some of me. Again, it's just a part of me. Look at my conversation with Tim York recently. But I, I've tried to share myself with you because, you know, what 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 has God what has God given me that is more valuable than myself? Who have you, you know, look at look at what Jesus says about exchange the whole world for your very self. Um so yeah, Chad, Chad, keep sharing yourself because you're 
you're a remarkably beautiful person. And I mean that. And that's why we love you because you're a remarkably beautiful person and you share yourself. And the same goes with Nate and with Grim and with Jacob and with Mark and with all the other people on this little corner, especially the ones that have, uh, um, aren't trusted. <laughs> you're not all trustworthy. I know that. <laughs> and I'm not naming names. Hi, Pastor. It's considered cross-dressing for men to not grow beards if they can. <laughs> I, I really should. I really should do my, so my, my sister. So a lot of people always ask about merch. So my sister, whose YouTube channel and clay, the primitive home, she did merch because my sister looks to YouTube to make much more of a living than I do at this point. Am I going to, am I going to, is it going to become the big, um, the big grift is PVK going to be a grifter. Um, but, uh, so my sister used Teespring for a bunch of her things and then Teespring just really messed up a whole bunch of stuff. So she stopped using it. So, but my, my daughter did this beard evolution thing that, um, my daughter's known me a lot of years. She's watched the beard grow and shrink, grow and shrink, lose its sides, gain its sides. I should probably be more conscious of my personal appearance. If you, if you look carefully, you can see I've got a spill here and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just a slob. What do you think of men's only spaces being pushed to the periphery and essentially only existing in spaces that are hyper-masculine by nature? Think combat training gyms. Are we creating a monster? Yes. What I think of men's only spaces, I think we need them. I loved what Mary Harrington had to say on trigonometry about that. Um, we need men's only spaces. We need women's only spaces. Um, the freedom of assembly. So, you know, this is a hallmark of the American system. People should have the freedom to assemble in the groups that they find helpful. And that can go along sex and gender and all sorts of different ways. It's good for us. And, you know, this little corner is, a, is an assembly in many ways. Churches are an ecclesia. They're an assembly. So, yeah, and if you start, and, and this is, you know, I, I'm, I know Peterson's in trouble for his war with the Pope, um, but I wouldn't keep watching Peterson if I didn't think it was right about a lot of things. And if I'm, I usually stop watching people because I'm annoyed by them more than necessarily think they're wrong. But, you know, Peterson recently, even though people think that he's some right-wing ideologue, I mean, he's been critiquing DeSantis and some of what Florida was doing. And he had an interesting conversation with Christopher Rufo, who I didn't know who he was, but I found that conversation quite interesting. Um, you know, the way to deal with Drag Queen Story Hour is probably not to try to ban drag queens. Listen to Pichot. The fringe is the fringe. The center is the center. Um, the difficulty, and I actually made a video about this, which might come out on Monday. The difficulty with banning is that when you ban something, you make it sacred. Uh, again, that doesn't, now I'm not going to say banning, banning, because that then makes banning sacred. So uh, there's, a there's a complexity to reality that is that we have to continue to contend with. 
So you're exactly right. When you, if you ban male-only spaces, then you get hyperspaces. It's, and if you ban, if you, you have tremendously rigid masculine-feminine dress codes, you will start getting hyper-dressing. Um, wisdom is about managing the unmanageable. And so we have to work on those things. So, yeah, no, I agree. Happy Friday, Paul. Thanks, Dave77. To what extent do you think, let's see what, no, we got time. To what extent do you think there has been tremendous confusion over the understanding of what the word world in the New Testament, oh yeah, big. It means three things within one chapter in the Gospel of John. In the New Testament, for example, the, the verse, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, right? And God so loved the world. Now, the Gospel of John is full of that. Um, does a Christian not have to see this present world as being good, as God declared in Genesis? Yes. It is good but fallen. That's usually what we say. I ask because I grew up with Christian parents that by reckoning did a lot of harm by not caring to engage in this world because it is it was just something to pass through until they got to the actual world to which they felt they belonged. Innumerable problems occurred with this mentality. Do you see this outlook as being a way in which Christians are actually refusing to have proper faith? So one of the interesting little items in the Jesus People chapter that I sort of remixed for the video that I made this week about them was the fact that Part of what the Jesus people was open the door to the Christian world for new kinds of music. It's a wonderful thing. In the Christian Reformed Church in the 1920s, along with many other Protestant denominations, maybe some Roman Catholics too, I don't know, um, Christian Reformed Church warned against worldly amusements, and one of those amusements was card playing. And so if you had cards with kings and queens and jacks, uh, those were verboten. But you could play cards with a raven on it that just had numbers called Rook. You couldn't go to movies. And I remember the first movie I remember seeing in the theater was Sound of Music. Sound of Music brought broke the back of the Christian Reformed prohibition on movies. Um, from my Baptist mother-in-law, I know that that prohibition on movies um, was more, far more broad than just the Christian Reformed Church. So my mother-in-law would not go to movie theaters to watch movies because it might be a problem for her witness, but she sure watched plenty of them on TV. You're very right about what it means, what the, what the word world means in your translations in the New Testament, and just reading Greek won't solve the problem. And as I mentioned before, if you read the Gospel of John, there's all sorts of senses to that question. At the same time, so what we've had in the last 50 years has been sort of open season on Christians watching anything on TV. And what used to be on TV was fairly tame, and then cable came along. And, you know, there, you can still sense some of it because, you know, should a Christian watch Game of Thrones? Should a Christian watch R-rated movies? I, I was really interested to... Um, I was watching. So Father Eric has a YouTube channel. Shh, don't tell anybody. Maybe he'll put the link to it in the comments. Um, 
Father Eric was talking to Mark LeFaber on the YouTube, and it wasn't on Navigating Patterns. And I don't remember what Father Eric's channel is called. Um, they can put the link in the comments. You know, we see or see hate Nazis, loved watching the nuns own the Germans. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right, Flebus. The CRC people cheered. Yay! Still, it was when I was in the Netherlands. They're still sore about the bombing of Rotterdam. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's not my loss. So, so basically, what in the so I there was a there was a guy in my Christian school went to the Netherlands Reformed Church and didn't have a TV. You know what? That dude read books. That dude read tons of books. I think he's a landscaper now, probably still reads books. Um, because he didn't have a TV. I wasted how many hours watching Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days on TV and how much other junk? Godzilla movies. So you have to work, you have to figure out what's best. And um, sometimes on this side of the internet, we might look back and say, you know, you know, maybe I would have been better off if I'd shown a little bit more discernment. Did I really need to see everything that was in all those R-rated movies? To what degree did just seeing them impact me in a way that has become stumbling stones and hindrances to the own development of my righteousness? These are tough questions, but the thing is you can't avoid the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. What did he mean by that instance of the world? So it's a great question and one that Christians continue to struggle with. I, I, I know you can't, you need lines, but none of your lines will be perfect. Gordon, Macedonian guy. Hey, Paul, we met at BOM Festival. Yeah, I remember you. And I've been frequent, um, and I've been frequenting your channel since. Thank you for your content. Well, thank you, Gordon. It was it was great meeting you there. I remember you're from Macedonia and you're going to school in Germany. I, I didn't know until I got to Germany that lots of people from all over Europe go to school in Germany and it's free. You just gotta get to don't tell Americans this because you wouldn't believe what school costs here, but if you just get to Germany, you can have a free college education. And a lot of it's in English. You don't even have to learn German. Although going to Germany, learn German while you're there. You know, what a, what a, there's a twofer. Um, I have a problem I've been trying to explore and it'd be great to hear your point of view on this. Would it be fair to say that the post-Christian world is reverting and has been reverting since the enlightenment back to polytheism in which ideas take the place of gods or simply gods without human aspects or is rather reverting back to pantheism, as C.S. Lewis described it. Is it even fair to present the problem as such in the first place, or simply is every debate about beliefs necessarily a theological debate? So, the gods are still with us. But what are the gods? Um, Neil Gaiman wrote a very interesting novel, American Gods. 
as a very interesting novel. I haven't seen the movie. I haven't seen the TV adaptation. There are some aspects of the Enlightenment is a Christian movement. Say that first. Older traditions of Christianity rightfully critique that movement. I don't know that the movement could have been avoided. I don't think contemporary expressions of older Christian traditions can actually avoid being impacted by that movement. The power of the Enlightenment continues to fade as we see modernity recede. But the learnings of the Enlightenment also don't go away, and so we're sifting. The whole pantheism question is interesting because it very much gets into my God number one stuff. This stuff is enormously complex to talk about. There are good reasons why the post is can the world actually be post Christian after secularization has so deeply impacted the world and Christianity snuck under the door? Boy, it's a good question. I don't know if I can answer it, but it's a good question. Gabby G. Hi, Paul. It's said that here on um, that we are on the earth, but not of the earth. I believe that. But I also feel strong connections to the earth, specifically the soil itself. Can you explain why 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 one would feel a connection to dirt? We are we are the stuff of earth and the breath of God. I always do this thing, upper and lower register. We are the stuff of earth. God makes a man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathes into the man, and he becomes a living nefesh. That's why you feel a connection, because you're, you are the stuff of earth and the breath of God. And Christianity doesn't have us leave behind the stuff of earth. Christianity has the union of heaven and earth finally perfected. And to get back to the previous question about the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment in some ways was the, the stuff of earth rising above and connecting back. And even though part of the Enlightenment comes idealism, which has some connections with the upper register. Have you heard of that before? Oh, yeah. So, so... I really have to get working on this because May is going to come quickly. The, the theme of the conference is the quest for a spiritual home. In some ways, when Christians sing, I'll fly away or this earth is not my home, they have a point. Sometimes there's also a bit of Gnosticism and heresy in those songs because in another way, this earth is your home. But it gets back to the question of what do we mean by world? Because in some ways, this is just another version of the question that he asked about world. 
we are the union of heaven and earth. And I think Matthew Peugeot's book nicely illustrates that. That's how we are. And so when we're the quest for a spiritual home, when you've got spiritual home and you put those two words together, oh, now interesting things are going to happen. Because in many ways, part of my first point is going to be there is a sense in which the world as it currently is, is insufficient to host you. It cannot finally fully be your home or fulfill the expectations of your home. Because there's issues with earth, depravity. And earth has to be perfected. And this is the resurrected body of Christ. The resurrected body of Christ is creation 2.0, realized still in the time space of 1.0. And when Jacob asked, well, why did he ascend? Well, because he's creation 2.0 and the next creation will return with him. But that will be deeply connected to the present creation we live in. So, and, and this again has everything to do with the world question and has everything to do with the enlightenment question that we just had before. So yes, you have a strong connection to this earth because it is your home. Now, I haven't seen anybody wrestle with this in as concrete a way as C.S. Lewis does in his book, The Last Battle, because they recognize old Narnia and new Narnia, and they recognize old England and new England we can absolutely not conceive how we, we, we really struggle to conceive the phenomenology of the new creation, but it is not disconnected with the phenomenology of this creation. And I think all of that is built into the accounts of Jesus' resurrection. So Nate had a wonderful conversation with Jordan Wood and... Um, Chris Green on Grail Country about the resurrection. Now, it's kind of highfalutin. You know, you don't go into Grail Country without a little bit of education and a lot of book reading. That's part of the blessing and difficulty of Grail Country. But a wonderful conversation about the resurrection. I'm going to have a conversation with Nate and... Um, Aaron from the morning show about hell coming up next week. Dum, dum, dum. I go into that with fear and trembling. You know, you don't just have a conversation with Nate Heil and just walk into there lightly. You know, just again, that's the autodidact problem. Nate is tremendously well-read. He's very smart. He's very articulate. He believes his point strongly. Yeah, he's a formidable human being. But hey, sometimes you go into the lion's den. Or you go into the lair of the dragon. That's where the treasure is found. But all these issues are connected. Um, so the fact that you feel an attachment to this earth is absolutely right. And I believe that in your perfection, God will perfect that sense that you have as well in a way that will be better and more delightful 
than you can imagine. I don't do enough of these question and answers because the truth is you guys and your question and answer provoke me into saying some things that I really like to say and I really ought to say, but they often don't come out except in the question and answer because you guys, you guys provoke the pastor in me with your very real questions instead of a lot of the abstractions and thinky talky questions that, that we tend to major in, in this little corner. And, um, I'll have to, I'll have to consider to continue to think about that. That gives you a side of me that, um, maybe others locally see more of me, maybe, maybe not, but, um, you ask really practical questions. Um, all right. This is, so this is the last question of the day. Hi, PVK. There's Matt C. Have you been Messiah Ben Joseph pilled yet? <laughs> <laughs> the lineage of the suffering Messiah archetype through Joseph Ephraim rather than kingly Messiah archetype through Judah David. Yeah, Jacob was the one who introduced me to this idea. What a, what a cool idea. Very rabbinic. Ask Jacob sometime if you haven't had that convo. Yeah, he's told me about it. Would be fun to see it streamed. You know, if... if um. If God isn't done with the Jews, why are they still around? As Jews, the the one of the one of the most fascinating people in this little I mean Jacob Jacob has me dead on with this. I find I find Hezi one of the most fascinating people in this little corner because he's wrestling with he he's wrestling with what we're wrestling with, but he's doing it in a in a Jewish context where in a sense they've inherited the world. Um Yeah, Jacob can explain. Maybe Jacob should do his own video on Messiah ben Joseph versus Messiah ben David or Judah. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer will be answered. And when it is finally fully answered... I have a lot of critiques of The Good Place, that show that was on NBC... Um, none of us can get it all right because now we know that better because of combinatorial explosiveness. None of us are big enough to know and articulate the whole thing. That doesn't mean we don't have to discern and that there aren't more right and more wrong here in the world. You just, you know, um, oh, there, there's a piece. So I did a little bit of the Peugeot um, I did a little bit of the Peugeot David Schindler conversation on climbing Mount, Mount Sophia. Like Ken's doing a great job on his channel, by the way. I didn't mention his channel in any of the things. It's a, probably a little corn, more corner to the Verveke Peugeotian side of this little corner, but Ken's doing a bang up job there. And um, I clipped, you know, a little bit of what, what, Jonathan said about the Jesus story, and Jonathan's exactly right. Can you think of a better story? I don't think we can because, you know, Hollywood movies have been ripping off that story right and left. Peterson is Peterson because he recognized 
the archetypal character of the story of Jesus. Now, again, just because it's an archetypal story doesn't mean it's not actually real history. And, and the more layers that are engaged, the more real it is, which is why I believe Thomas touched Jesus' scarred hands in bewilderment. And Jesus said, don't doubt, Thomas. Doubt is doubt can be fashionable. Doubt can be inevitable. But what we really doubt is the ability of God to do far more than we can possibly ask or imagine. We shouldn't doubt that. That should be what faith really is. That the God who began this story, that hosts this story in this world, that moves this story, will finally complete and perfect this story, and in the completion and perfection of the story, has the power to complete and perfect you. There's the gospel. So, and this can get into, you know, a little bit of history of Calvinism between the Roman Catholics and the and, and the Protestants. Catholics or, or Protestants and Calvinists especially often are characterized as um, sort of being enormously passive in that we can't do anything. And, and part of the reason why I don't think that's completely true of Calvinists is because they're so often telling people to do something and demanding it of themselves and each other. Just as I'm doing right now, um, participate in the perfection and completion of the story. And so to MJ, who's got all kinds of doubts about the utility of this little corner, no matter how fascinating it is, I would not be participating and hosting and promoting this little corner and estuary and all that I do in this little corner if I did not believe that we are in fact participating and promoting and um, in the in the perfection and completion of the great story that God begins in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and he's still doing it, and he's not stopping, and he's never going to stop. And he invites you not only along for the ride, that would be having the fourth wall up, but breaking down that darn fourth wall, Grim Grizz, and saying, you not only get to watch, you get to play, you get to act, you get to participate, you get to engage, you get to... You get to be a part of the story and whatever little life you have been given, this is your opportunity. Don't pass it by. It's the greatest possible thing you could ever imagine and it's a gift to you free. Take it. Yeah, you guys get me preaching. Chad the Alcoholic. Matt C says, best question, frankly. Are the use of hashtags a form of spellcasting? Yeah, it's kind of. Remember Jordan Peterson's little spat with the Pope. It's hashtag social justice. A little hashtag is not incidental. It's not incidental at all in the fight that Jordan is picking with the Pontifex. <laughs> it's crazy. See, this is the world you've been given, people. Don't waste it on things that are less than 
there's a good definition of running away from sin. Sin is always less than. You know, I, I love Jesus' attitudes and how many parables. You know, it's, 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 there, there, there's something about, there's something deeply Christian about going to God and saying, it's like Moses does, you know, I want to see your face. Our hunger for God should lead us to move towards God with reckless abandonment and say, I accept nothing less than you. I, I want union with Christ. I want to be like you. I want all of those things. That's what the Christian life is about. And 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 that then is, is played out in how many different places and ways down here below. You know, Jordan Peterson picking a fight with the Pope. How much fun is that? Yeah, yeah. Are there cringy aspects to it? Sure. Um, but, you know, isn't the world richer that Jordan Peterson picked a fight with the Pope? I think it is. Was it a good idea? I'm not picking a fight with the Pope. Um, I won't even pick a fight with Father Eric. Why would I pick a fight with Father Eric? I love Father Eric. I pick a fight with Sam. I love Sam. I pick a fight with Chad. I love Chad. Pick a fight with Grim. I love, love Grim. I pick fights with some people, but, um, Usually once we form a, a, a larger degree of fellowship and friendship, then the fights change too. Because then we're not fighting against each other. We're fighting for our better selves, our better imaginal selves. So anyway, yeah, re watch um, Peugeot's talk with uh, David uh, um, Schindler of, I don't know if I have his book here. Um, and, and the little corner's getting better and better. You know, Nate's trying to bring in Chris Green and Jordan Wood and, and, and Ken is bringing in other people, David Schindler and, and blessed are you who are already in the corner because you got in on the ground floor and, and you can say, Maybe you can say to your children someday, I was, I, I was on the Virtually Not Alone channel, or I was on Jacob's Just Chatting, or I was one of the first thousand members of the Bridges of Meaning Discord server, or I was at the German Festival, or I was in the Chicago meetup, or I went to Thunder Bay. Where? Thunder Bay, beautiful city on Lake Superior. I was at Urban Abbey and there were only like, there were less than 200 of us. And we had opportunities to, to play paintball for Jesus. And I shot PVK with a paintball. He looked like Big Bird in that big yellow slicker. Thanks, Eamon. Um, or I got down to Chino, California and I saw Grim Grizz and a jocks. I don't want to see Grim Grizz and a jock step on a cross. No. No, 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 no. I don't want to see it. Blessed are you who is virtually not alone and you get to play. All right. I'm done. How fun. Not. What do you mean not, Mark? Wait, 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 Rick. Don't end transmission yet.
how rebels who are collecting clout from others and use them to the justification of their own interpretation of how to rebel against whatever. <laughs> Mark, 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 you're something else. Mark is something else. Could not shoot PVK. <laughs> Four times, gun jammed every time. <laughs> others succeeded though, Mark. I don't know what that says. I did get shot repeatedly. Um, yes, Mark and I sat next to each other at the conference and we had a wonderful time. So indeed, indeed. All right, Rick, you can end transmission.